You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. I'm sure we all know the story that the children of Israel for a number of years were incarcerated in the work camps of Egypt. And the time came when it was God's desire that they would be liberated. And we didn't go into the whole story about Moses being called and Moses going to Pharaoh. And eventually they were liberated from Egypt after a number of pressures were put on uh, Pharaoh uh, through the plagues of Egypt. But the children of Israel had now got to the stage where they had passed and crossed the Red Sea. Moses was leading them southwards, and it wasn't the most direct route if they were going to go to the Promised Land, but it was the route that, for one reason or another, God had prescribed. The northern route would have been a much more logical uh, way to go, especially when there was a couple of hundred thousand people involved, and soon that food and water would be needed, and their cattle, for not only for themselves, but for their cattle and their sheep. But for one reason or another, it was God's plan that they didn't go the, uh, as it were, the route that would have been considered to be the most appropriate. The cloud that they were following was moving southwards, and Moses wasn't going to take any matters into his own hands. He had learned at this stage in his life to trust God, and that whatever God was suggesting to him would be far more than any human understanding that he would have. And so he thought, even though the maneuver may have been somewhat, humanly speaking, irrational and irresponsible, that that was the way that he was to go. And also ahead of Moses, there was an, off, an awesome task, because he was about to take the people into a fairly desolate desert where the resources, the provision of food, would be ne- nearly non-existent. And also to make matters worse, the children of Israel were not noted for their great spiritual maturity. And they were, like many people today, they could moan and complain when things didn't happen to go the way that they wanted. And that certainly was going to be the case because after several weeks, we discover that in spite of God providing for them as he was doing on a daily basis, we discover that they started to complain to Moses and they said that it would be far better that they would return to Egypt and that they would die there than in this desert. However, very soon, they arrived at Mount Horeb, and that was the place where God had initially uh, called Moses to be the leader of the people of Israel. And at that point, we discover that Moses was reunited with his father-in-law, Jethro, along with his wife and his two sons, and they had a, a time together at that particular point. And we discover that they, that is the father-in-law and his wife and the sons, they had heard of all the miracles of deliverance that the people of Israel had experienced and how that Moses was leading them, and they wanted to hear more details about all that had been happening. And, And the reunion gave them this opportunity to just talk together about all that God had done for them. And we read that when they heard all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, we read that Jethro rejoiced And he said, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, and he engaged in an act of worship. And in one sense, all of us who are here this evening should be replicating what the thought was in the mind of Jethro at that particular time. When we think about all of what the Lord has done 
not only through the pages of the Old Testament, but through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit coming uh, into the world and enabling us to exercise saving faith and to become God's children, we too, like Jethro, should be marveling and we should be rejoicing. But Jethro, we see, he recognized the miracle of the Red Sea and he became aware of God's provision, of God's help and his protection and his power and we see at that particular point he worshipped God, he offered God sacrifices and I suppose we could say that at that point uh, we could say that he was experiencing conversion, he was experiencing uh, a knowledge of God and what God had done. And you know, it's true today to say today that many people uh, down through the years when they've heard the gospel preached and when they have recognized who Jesus is as the Holy Spirit has moved in their hearts and lives they have been able to exercise saving faith and they have become God's children simply through recognizing what God has done and hearing what God has done preached from from pulpits from street corners from friends who have been witnessing to other people and that is something that we should rejoice in and we too like Jethro should be praising God we should be rejoicing and as Jethro did too in some respects he offered himself as we'll see in a moment to be an instrument that God could use in the days that were ahead and so as we come this evening let's Let's look together at the fact and come to the conclusion together uh, as we've studied so far that Jethro had become, through what he had seen, what he had heard, he had become a follower of the Lord. But then I want us to move on uh, quite quickly from what we might term Jethro's conversion to Jethro's observation. And this is, a, I think, is very important because we see that the days following uh, his reunion and the time that he spent and the family spent together, he started to observe what Moses was doing. And what was Moses doing? Well, all day long, Moses was sitting and he was dealing with the problems and the concerns of the people. He was a bit of an agony aunt, where you can just imagine him sitting outside a tent on a wee stool, and there was this queue of people, and they were coming, and remember, there were hundreds of thousands of these people, uh, and therefore, even if only a few percentage of them wanted to have a, a discourse with Moses, there would have been some queue, and so they were there waiting, and people were waiting for the advice and the counsel to maybe solve social problems, family problems, personal problems. And all this weight was falling on Moses. And day by day, he was becoming increasingly exhausted. As he would have been there in the morning, he would have been listening all evening, to the, to all day to the evening, and then he would be trying to give of his best and the right advice to these people. And as Jethro observed all this, he, he was really quite forthright in what he said. He went to Moses and he said, listen, this isn't good. You're totally and completely wearing yourself out. And earlier when Moses was reluctant to take on the job of leadership, you remember God provided with 
him at that time with Aaron. And the two of them went to, um, to Pharaoh to, to talk things over. But now that Moses was involved in, in leading these vast numbers of people into the uncharted wilderness, we discover at this particular time things were completely different. He seemed to just take it on board himself and not be concerned about looking for any help. And Moses had to learn at this particular time that a new style of leadership was absolutely necessary. And he was learning this from his recently converted father-in-law, Jethro, who wanted to be uh, communicate God's message to Moses at that time. And so we have his conversion, we've got Jethro's observation, and I want us to look at Jethro's suggestion. He suggested that if Moses was going to survive and cope in the future, that he needed, as it were, to serve as a go-between between God and the people. Now, a couple of chapters later, we discover that he did become a go-between because uh, a few chapters later, we read that he went up to Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, remember, God gave him the Ten Commandments and he had to come back down from Mount Sinai. And uh, he was, uh, when he arrived down from Mount Sinai, you remember what happened, he was given the commandments uh, and he had to communicate them to the people. But that was, that was the first thing. He said that he needed to be a go-between God and the people. The second thing, he said that as leader, uh, once that he knew God's will, that he had to communicate this in a way that was understandable, which he was doing when he came down from the mountain, as they or later on. He did that in an understandable way. But then the suggestion was, and it was maybe a little more complicated for Moses to put into practice, was that he should select people and there would be one person would have a responsibility over a thousand of these folks. And then within that thousand, there would be, uh, by the time you worked the whole thing out, there would be a hundred people who would look after ten each. So there was some sort of a, a system arranged where there was a, a mentoring system between uh, a few people who were responsible for, for about ten each. Uh, and therefore, the responsibility would not fall all with Moses. And if people had a problem, then they would go to this person who was to be, as it were, looking after them. But if the problem was too great, or if the people were unable to address the problem sufficiently well, what would they do was they would go to Moses and he would take on the hard cases, as it were. And when you think about it, with the crowd of people that Moses had to look after. That was pretty much common sense that, that this sort of pattern should emerge. When we flip across from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we discover in a smaller way a pattern of that type emerged in the early church. In Acts chapter 6, you read about the apostles and they were responsible for the for the preaching and for the, the whole oversight of the, of the situation within church life at that particular time. And from among those who were converted in those early days, there were, there were people who were poor. And you read about this particularly in the church of Jerusalem. And you read that because there was famines and all sorts of things happening in that particular area at that time, uh, people 
really needed help. And later on, if you read through the New Testament, you discover that the, the Christians of Macedonia were, were very enthusiastic and willing and wanting to help those who were in the church uh, in, in the poor situation in Jerusalem. But anyway, in Jerusalem at that particular time, there was quite a constituency of people who fell into the category of being widows. And they had a poor fund in the church, and the poor fund helped these widow people. But I say, if you read Acts 6, what you discover is that in that situation, that there was a group of the widows felt that they were being overlooked, that there were certain people who were given preferential treatment. Now, I'm sure as far as the apostles were concerned, they had no intentions of having a division between one sort of uh, widow or another, but that just happened to be the way it was. And the apostles were swamped because they were preaching and they were doing all sorts of things. And what did they say? In Acts 6, they were told, the church was told to appoint seven deacons who would be primarily responsible to look after this aspect of the church's life. And as a consequence, that would free the apostles to get on with the task that they were supposed to be doing. That was the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And therefore, what we can say is this, that, they, that what has been suggested to Moses, not to take on all the responsibility for himself, but to, to put it in the, in the hands of qualified and efficient individuals, was being replicated too in the church in, 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 in the early days. And surely that's a pattern that we should be thinking about today as Christian people, that we should be involved together unitedly in working within the church of Jesus Christ. In every church, well, at least in every Presbyterian church, there are, there'll be a minister, uh, and there'll be, there are elders, and their leaders, leaders of the young, leaders of children, leaders of different organizations, and those who take on responsibility. And when they take on these responsibilities, then they fulfill them and they, as it were, take the, the pressure off other people who may feel that they would have to do it had these other people not been doing it. And as I was thinking about when I came along to to both churches this morning to, to Comfort and now to Union Road. Uh, and as I listened to the announcements in, in the Comfort, and as I listened then to the announcements here, uh, I thought to myself, yes, there are opportunities for people to be doing work for the Lord, particularly at this time of the year. We can't all be ministers, we can't all be elders, we can't all be Sunday school teachers. And I remember when I was working in, in uh, Trinity in Balamoney, that there were certain people, and for one reason or another, and legitimate reasons, they weren't able to be at the forefront of leadership. They couldn't teach and commit themselves every Sunday to be a Sunday school teacher. But what they could do was that when the summer came and there was a holiday Bible club, they could commit themselves to be enthusiastically helping in the holiday Bible club for a week. Or they could do things on a, on a non-regular basis. And as I was thinking about it, and I changed what I was going to say even this afternoon as a result of what I was hearing this morning, I was thinking, when is the best time for all of us unitedly within the church to be working together 
for the advancement of Christ's kingdom and for an opportunity for Christian witness. And surely there's no better a time than Christmas. And as I was thinking uh, this afternoon about, about Le Comfort and, and, and the fact that you team up in, in some way, uh, I noticed it on the announcements, you, you team up with the Hope Christmas Appeal. There's a number of people in the church there can obviously help provide for all these Christmas hampers that are uh, given out uh, over, the, over the Christmas season for the, the Hope Christmas Appeal. And they can be involved at that particular level. You, you, you don't have a town around you like, uh, like Macherfeld does, but I'm sure there are ways that you can exploit the opportunity of Christmas to reach out to people who very often would make a point of coming to a carol service and invite them to it. Whereas uh, it might be this is their opportunity to do so. Or, or for the folks in, in Union Road here, uh, there was a fairly uh, passionate appeal made this morning uh, for people to sign up for, for the day that the Christmas tree lights will be switched on in the town uh, and giving out invitations and inviting people to come here and uh, have something else to eat and give them some literature and use this as an opportunity this particular Christmas to bring people in and to encourage people when they come in. Uh, and, and if you happen to be one of those people who are successful in, in getting somebody to come in, uh, and if they're their neighbor or your friend, uh, when you do bring them in, stay with them uh, and encourage them, don't go to some other huddle of people that you know and leave them standing. Um, I go out, I was not going to say this, but I, I go out most Sundays, you know, to, to preach. And uh, there was one Sunday about a number of weeks ago, we'll not say how long ago it was, uh, but a number of weeks ago, I arrived at a church that I'd never been at in my life before. And uh, nobody knew me. And uh, of course, ministers come in disguise now when they don't wear their, their terrible colors. And I arrived at this church, and uh, I went in the front door, and there were three elders in black suits all standing. And each of them sort of gawked at me and wondered now, who's going to say and to him? And I said, oh, hello, how is everybody? Oh, all right. Uh, I said, uh, where do I go? Oh, I'm going wherever you like. And uh, I, I, I thought, well, I'll go in this aisle or I'll go in that aisle. And I thought, well, this boy looks more uh, amenable than this boy. So I went to this side uh, and, and I said, uh, well, um, uh, is there a wee room? Oh, oh, is it the toilet you're looking? No, no. I said, no, no, no. no. I said, um, uh, is there a minister's room? Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, you can go up there. I thought to myself, if a visitor arrived at this particular church, what sort of impression would they have? I remember I used to say to our folks in Trinity, you know, that when a visitor comes to our church, they've already made up their mind about the church before I even went to the pulpit. About how they're welcomed at the door, uh, how they're made feel uh, welcome and I was talking to a woman the other day, and she said to me, I went to such and such a church the other day. You have heard this story until the cows come home. I went to such and such a church the other day, and I walked in, and I was thinking of joining it, but when I walked in and sat down, there was a woman who came and told me I was sitting in her seat and I had to get it moved. And uh, so I moved to another church, uh, and, you know, there's a glorious opportunity at Christmas for all of us, not only the elders or leaders, but for all of us who make a profession to roll up our sleeves and to get involved for a week or whatever it happens to be, even a night, and invite people along and to share 
in, in, the, in the fellowship and to make them feel that, well, we'd love to see you at the carol service then. And then if they came to the carol service and they hadn't any church links, you know, we'd love to see you coming on a Sunday and make them feel, feel welcome. And in some respects, isn't that what, what Jethro was, was trying to do in a completely different context? He was saying, look, Moses can't do all this on his own. Everybody needs to pull their weight. And when it came to the New Testament, everybody needed to pull their weight in the church. And when everybody pulled their weight, the Holy Spirit used their united efforts in order to bring glory to God. And if that's our desire, then what should be our, our, our action immediately? Our action should be, yes, to target people in our minds that maybe we want to invite. But don't just target them for the sake of bringing them. The first thing that we need to do is pray for them. And pray that God will open their hearts and their minds to be responsive to the invitation. And that when they're responsive to the invitation, that when they come, that they will have a good feel about what they've experienced. And that if there's a message proclaimed, that they will understand the message and that they will respond to it. And like Jethro, that they will be converted. And that in tr if they're truly converted, then they'll want to take their place within the Christian community. And so as we come this evening, let's think together about Jethro. And how that he saw what was going on, he appreciated what Moses was doing, he saw the problems that Moses was having, and he responded effectively and created a situation where in the future it made it easier for Moses to do the leadership role that he was called to do. And that in so doing, he became a blessing to others who entered into a leadership role. And they too would have received the blessing of helping people and encouraging people. And that situation was in some respects replicated in the church in the New Testament. And God surely wants it to be repl replicated in each of our lives this evening as we use whatever opportunities are available and Christmas being a golden one to reach out to the community, to reach out to our friends, to reach out to our family with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Thank you.